and welcome to The Jay Martin Show. This is Jesse from Commodity Culture, temporarily stepping in for Jay. And today's guest is the Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Double Line Capital, Jeffrey Sherman. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, nice to be with you, Jesse. So I wanted to get started with your view on the Fed recently raising rates by 75 basis points, which caused quite a sell-off in the broad markets when we look at the S&P and the NASDAQ, etc., so people were questioning whether the Fed would ease, but it does look like Powell's hawkish stance continues. So we don't have a crystal ball here, but do you foresee more rate hikes ahead or do you think something will eventually break and, and the Fed will be forced to pivot up ahead? Yes, yes, and yes. Uh, but uh, I think that that's a long ways away uh, from the, the breaking slash pivoting. And so what you saw with yesterday's FOMC meeting was uh, language inside the text that seemed to appear that the Fed was going to be starting to ease their hiking regime. And, you know, by easing, not cutting rates and creating easier policy, but not being wedded to this kind of 75 uh, basis point, as they called it in the previous meeting, extraordinary uh, levels of hikes. And so um, the market wants to believe that there's some dovish pivot coming at some point. And I think that's what you saw out of the, the prepared text and then Jay could not be any more hawkish when he came to the, the stand. Um, he was very adamant about that they need to continue to, to, to raise rates from these levels. Um, he's very adamant about that once they hit the so-called terminal rate or the highest rate that they'll get to in the hiking cycle, that they're going to stay there for a while. Hence, no pivot there either. And, you know, they may indeed have to actually hike higher than they had forecasted at the last meeting, which uh, the previous meeting in September, which is when they created their economic projections. They're, they do those quarterly. So you'll see those again in December. And so uh, the market got this kind of very temporary rally uh, to begin with. Stocks rallied, rates rallied, spreads rallied. Every, it was everything rally. And then once Jay came out and reiterated uh, what he was trying to say, um, ultimately, there was big reversals there. And so, you know, the market has been looking for this kind of dovish pivot uh, when it comes to risk assets for the last few weeks. And it started with the, an, an article from the Wall Street Journal reporter Nick Timoros, uh, who, if your listeners don't know, is really the most important person outside of the Fed uh, right now in financial markets because uh, he seems to be getting the early looks on what the Fed's doing. If you recall back in the summer, uh, when the market was only forecasting 50 basis point hikes, Tim Rose came out with this article of the 75. And so the market learns very quickly where those mouthpieces come from. And so th this isn't something new. The, the Fed has always used reporters to do things like this. So it it's not some new policy out there. Um, but, you know, now some are questioning the validity of Tim Rose's reporting. And, you know, his article was just saying at some point they're going to put themselves on a glide path to not do 75 basis point hikes. And I, I think that's what Jay wants to do. I think that's what he's trying to do, but he's leaving himself optionality. And I think it's the right call. And, you know, there's going to be critics that say, well, the Fed's data dependent. The problem is the data set they're looking at is completely lagged. And so by the time they see the data roll over, it'll be too late for them to react. But ultimately, I think what the Fed is trying to do is say, look, there are these root causes of inflation in the system. Uh, some of them were supply side driven, some of them demand side driven. Uh, obviously, the Fed can't affect the supply side of it, uh, but they can affect the demand side. And that's what they're trying to do. And so there are more Fed hikes ahead of us. Uh, the market 
thinks there's another 125 basis points between here and the end of the hiking cycle. So the upper bound right now is at 4%. Um, if you kind of think of the path of that, how the bond market has it priced, it's roughly a 50 basis point hike in December, another 50 also in February, which is the first meeting. And then at March, there's the potential at 25. And so um, maybe that's a little aggressive for the market to think so. Uh, I think just given the levels of inflation, the jolts data we saw earlier in the week with the job openings, and again, there's critics of, of a lot of these surveys out there, but it showed that there is still this very tight labor market. There was a, an increase of 700,000 jobs since the last report that are being available for out there for people to, to uh, apply for. And so I, I think, you know, until you see some more softening in the labor market, and this isn't a contraction labor market, but maybe growing at like 50,000 jobs a month or 75,000 jobs a month, potentially that, that gets the Fed to feel more comfortable about it. But there is this imbalance. And so you have this imbalance in labor, again, where it's staggered to more job openings than people looking for employment. And you, you couple that with the idea that we have this very high level of inflation. And so uh, expecting the Fed to take their Fed off the accelerator anytime soon just seems like a hope and a prayer at this point. And so uh, the old saying, you know, the trading saying is don't fight the Fed. And that's exactly what you need to be doing right now. Don't fight the Fed. They're not your friend. Expecting them, you know, to, to bail you out of, of a risky position to me seems like a futile exercise for at least the next few, uh, next few months, if not quarters. So how does your average retail investor navigate those waters? Because it's difficult to understand the effect that the Fed actually has on the broad market. So for your average retail investor out there, should they be paying close attention to what the Fed is doing? And are there any sectors you've identified that are not so influenced by Fed policy? <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's the great question. So in general, I tell investors, don't worry about the Fed. Um, you know, I, I said don't fight it, but also don't worry about it, right? And the reason you don't worry about it is policy is going to work. It's going to work with a lag. There's variable lags. I mean, Powell's emphasized this in the last two press conferences. And so what it means now is that the price of money went up. And when I say the price of money, I, I think of that as being the interest rate. So if you want to borrow money or lend money, the price of that went up. And so for investors that have been complaining about not having yield, guess what, Jesse? There is yield everywhere. I mean, look, I, I've got to, I've got to watch out by walking down the street. Yield is everywhere. It's going to hit me upside the head, right? Where 14 months ago, the high yield market yielded inside of four percent. Today, T bills offer you four percent in terms of that. So you have to take zero risk. Uh, yes, you have some purchasing power risk. You have, you know, again because of the inflationary environment. But think about where we were 14 months ago, where you had to lend to the junkiest companies in corporate America to get that level of yield. So to the average investor, what this means is that, first of all, if you're nervous about things, you can put it in cash and make some money. Now, when I say cash, I don't mean put it in the checking account or put it in the savings account. I'm talking about money market accounts, right? Government guaranteed money market accounts that are on their way to yielding 4% after yesterday's Fed move. So for someone who is nervous about something, you can stay invested in these type of vehicles that keep you around the market. Now, obviously, money market isn't being invested in stocks. It's not in the bond market, but it is giving you the ability to stay in that area. And so if you want some more clarity and you want the Fed to get to this hiking regime, there's a place to park it for three, four, five, six months. Okay, so there's an alternative. The second thing to do 
is also just to rethink your asset allocation. And so looking at the way that the markets have behaved, um, the stock market is down not because of really some really challenge, I would say, with the U.S. economy. The stock market is down because rates are up. Right. And so, uh, the, the, uh, the price earnings multiple on markets is inversely correlated with yields. And that's because the PE, the inverse of the PE is the E to the P. It's the earning yield on the stock market. And so when risk-free assets yield 4%, that means your risky assets have to yield greater as well. So to put that in perspective, those corporate uh, bonds that are below investment grade, the junkiest part of the market, I called it now yields 9% today. Right. So it needs a premium relative to that. So that means there should be some kind of compression that multiple, and it's going to take a little bit of time for the earnings to grow to get us back to where we have even footing. So when an investor is trying to worry about what's the Fed going to do, the Fed is following the bond market. The bond market is not following the Fed. The Fed is following the bond market. The bond market is listening to Jay Powell, and it's repricing the price of money. It's pricing the path of interest rates. And that's when I quote this earlier and said there's another... 125 basis points of hikes price to the market. The bond market knows that, right? Or at least that's what it's operating under as the assumption at this point. And so this idea that rates are going up, oh, I need to sit on the sidelines and wait for it. No, that's why the prices of bonds are down so much this year. So for an astute investor that is willing to take a little bit of risk, say you want to go outside of that money market and you're willing to take just a little bit of interest rate sensitivity. We call it like ultra short or short duration or low duration type of strategies. Those strategies today for high quality securities that don't have a lot of interest rate sensitivity, uh, portfolios we put together where those yield like north of 6% today. Okay. So all of a sudden now, well, you, you were getting roughly like 1.75 of what the high yield market was giving you. You're getting for a high quality, low interest rate risk bond portfolio today. And look, if you want to take risk out there, you can also do so. I mentioned the high yield market yields nine. You can put together, you know, lots of credit portfolios that can yield you seven, nine, 11 type of percent today. They have risk, no doubt. But the idea that there's, that people should be fearful today, the, the pain that's happened in financial markets is already reflected. And the good news about fixed income investing is that when prices get low, if you can re-underwrite the securities, you feel good about the, the lack of default prospects or that thing people can navigate through this market, you have a high return potential. And so what we're seeing in the bond market right now, and again, for an, uh, an investor that wants to run kind of low interest rate sensitivity, 6% yield. You want to run kind of middle market, look something like the Bloomberg ad, it's six and a half to seven, right? Because it's getting shape of curve in credit markets. You want to take credit risk, it's easily, you know, in the high single digits to low double digits today. So all of a sudden now, the bond market is one that I think investors should be really thinking about. I know people have been talking about, you know, the, the death of 60-40. Well, I think this is the resurrection of that 40 component, right? All of a sudden now, the bond market not only gives you the ability to take credit risk and get some level of yield, but also if you have deflation, if we have a recession, the rates market can rally in a meaningful manner. And so you can get an offset to those positions as well. So to us uh, at Double Line, this is some of the best opportunity we've seen really since late 2010 within the fixed income markets here in the U.S. So you mentioned in a recent video on the Double Line Capital YouTube channel that goods inflation has been decelerating and trade bottlenecks have been easing, but core inflation will still likely run higher than the Fed targets for the foreseeable future. 
Could you break that down for us and explain why you think core inflation is still going to run hot? Yeah. So core inflation, well, all that means is that they're taking the inflation number and they're stripping out commodity prices. And the old joke is like the reason they do that is because no one consumes commodities, right? Jesse, you didn't have any coffee today, right? You didn't have orange juice. You didn't have milk. You didn't drive a car. You don't have electricity, right? So, uh, but energy is volatile. Food prices can be volatile. And that's why they're stripped out. That's what core means. When you go into core CPI, about 30% of that comes from goods consumption and about 70% comes from services. It, 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 there's a little bit of rounding in there, but roughly those are the heuristics. So when we talk about goods, we had goods inflation for a while because one was the supply chain bottleneck. Uh, second was the pent up of being stuck at home, not being able to do services. People still spent money. Or there's also the thing about, well, I'm sitting in this house all the time. I want to do a remodel. Or I want to do something, you know, something out there as well. So this goods component uh, coupled with some of the fiscal stimulus we saw led to increased prices of goods across the supply chain. So th this was, you know, we, we hear about chip shortages that we still hear out there. This was freight. These are appliance. It was everything essentially that people were consuming had some form of that price inflation. And we started to see that come down uh, in a meaningful manner where we were running the double digits where it was going, you know, growing at 10, 11, 12 percent. It's more like in the high sixes today. So doesn't feel great. But it's definitely rolling in the right direction. Now, the challenge is, is services. And I mentioned that services was about 70% of it. And the bad news is, is services continues to accelerate. Now, just because it has been accelerating doesn't mean it will. But when you dig into the pieces of it, what you find is that services, the key chunk of that comes from the housing market. And so this is either what we call rent or owner's equivalent rent um, is how the Fed measures this. And these variables operate with a significant lag. In fact, the lag can be anywhere from four to six quarters, right? So we're talking 12 to 18 months. So under that premise, what you're seeing that's coming into the owner's equivalent rate and the rent components is, is house market performance from last year, right? So think about what was happening in house prices last year. So it won't get to the level where we're seeing 15, 20% price gains. But owner's equivalent rent is now at about 6.7%, 6.6, I believe it was. So what you find is that that acceleration there because of the smoothing function, it's still going to continue to keep pressure there. Now, maybe it starts to roll over at some point in the near term, like we've seen the housing market, right? It's undeniable. House prices have slowed. Um, in some instances, they're rolling over. You get anecdotes about, you know, things trading below offer price these days. Um, obviously, interest rates are a big piece of that mortgage rates. Uh, have went up significantly where 30 year fixed rate mortgage is about seven and a quarter today, where, you know, 14, 15 months ago, you were talking in the low to mid threes. So that definitely has an impact there. But even if you got rid of the services X shelter, right? So getting rid of that shelter combined, and you said that was zero and you said goods inflation was zero and neither of them are the, the let alone contribution of the housing market to core CPI would give you a 2.7% core CPI today. So as long as that has some pressure in there, that's going to continue to be the case. Services, ex-shelter, typically does not go negative unless we're in a significant recession, right? So you usually get some inflation there. So the goods could actually be deflationary again. Prior to the pandemic, um, through most of the post-GFC to the pandemic period, it, a goods inflation was actually negative. It was deflationary. And you could say, well... You know, look, I didn't see the price of my goods going down. It's because of the adjustments that economists use. They're called hedonic adjustments. If the car has more 
value to it today. It has more bells and whistles, but it's the same price. They say the price went down, right? Um, so even if we got that, it's hard to see core inflation next year going below 3%. Now, I see commodities are going to zig and zag how they're going to be. So we really think that inflation probably looks closer to 4% next year, just given this pent up, uh, this kind of lagged function in there. And so what that means is that it, it'll be, it'll feel like mission accomplished from the Fed, right? We had this 9% inflation rate practically. You know, now we're rolling down to a 4%. It's going to feel like mission accomplished. Remember, 4% is still too high. And so I think the Fed would totally welcome a 4% inflation rate. They, they would love to see it, right? Way better than the eight handle we're running at. Uh, but there's still going to be that pressure there for the time being. So this is what we call the sticky components within the inflation side. And unfortunately, they're a little bit here to stay for a while. Now, the Fed says that they're not backward looking. They use estimates. They talk about inflation expectations. They want to keep those anchored. Um, they're trying to look forward in the data set. Um, so hopefully they're, they, they know this component. They've got like 900 PhDs. I'm sure someone can figure it out. It doesn't take, you know, a couple bond guys to, to tell them about it. But at the end of the day, I think what's important here is that if we start to see inflation come down, that's when the Fed will feel much more comfortable taking their foot off the accelerator. I think they want to be done with the 75s. I think they're willing to leave you 50s and 25s until they get it to where they start to see it be at a more comfortable level. The good news is in the Fed minutes that we saw roughly three weeks ago, they did talk about, look, they don't need to see inflation get back to 2% before they start cutting rates or get closer to neutral, um, that they're they're trying to you know balance all this out. But the risk to all of this, Jesse, and this is the, the biggest risk to an investor today, is that if inflation stays stubbornly high, the Fed is going to have to continue to hike and they're going to have to continue to put pressure on the market. So everything that I'm talking about is all predicated upon that. That's why there is a significant premium in bonds today. There is a risk premium for owning them because of this inflationary environment that we haven't seen in roughly four decades. So the U.S. dollar continues to be strong. This isn't necessarily good at all for, for other economies. Um, a lot of trade is done in U.S. dollars. It devalues other currencies in comparison. Do you see the U.S. dollar strength rolling over anytime soon? Or is this here for the foreseeable future? I think it's here for the foreseeable future until you get one of two things. And the first is the Fed pivot, right? The Fed starts to cut rates. You know, uh, typically currency pairs are related to interest rate differentials or interest rate differentials are what are driving that. So I think potentially that's something you you could see, but I don't see that happening in the next six plus months. So uh, to me, that doesn't give me signs that I want to bet against the dollar. Now, the other thing that could be kind of perverse here that people may not think about is that during a global recession, the U.S. tends to be one of the flight to quality assets, right? So people tend to buy treasuries. They tend to flock to the U.S. economy when there's uh, bad things happening abroad. And so what you could actually see here is that if you indeed had this environment where you start to see cracks of the global economy slowing, you see this recessionary type environment, people pile into the U.S., that piling into the U.S. requires dollars, means you have to buy dollars, you're selling other currencies, so it could lead to that last push-up. So I think that scenario is more likely to be a catalyst for the dollar turn, um, that it, 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 you have this what we'll call a blow-off top. That's uh, kind of the technical speak for just saying you get this melt-up in, in the asset before it rolls over. And so to me, that seems like the, the path that's more likely 
uh, to see here unless the Fed actually pauses at some point and the rest of the world just catches up, right? That's the, the world catches up in terms of our interest rate policy. So those are kind of the three ways I can see the dollar um, you know, starting to decline. And to me, the most likely scenario is that middle one. I would, I would describe it the uh, very significantly high probability relative to the other two. Um, but that's the way I would see the dollar playing out. So if you've mentioned that you've seen rising odds that the economy is in a recession, could you explain the indicators you're seeing that imply this and how deep do you think a potential recession could be? Because some people are calling this potentially one of the worst recessions in history. So what, where do you stand on that? Yeah, uh, I think the, the obvious thing, you know, the, the one that has the most street cred uh, out there is the inversion of the yield curve, right? And I'll use the old school measure of twos, tens, you know, that's when the two-year yield is greater than a 10-year yield, it typically is a sign of a, a looming recession. And we've been inverted for at least six months at this point now um, in the marketplace. And that's usually a pretty good harbinger that a recession is at, it's coming at some point. There, there's no great science to it. There's a lot of variability around it, but um, you know it, it has a pretty good track record. And so that's the obvious one. Another one that we look at that has a lot of street credibility is the leading economic indicator. And not shockingly, being a leading economic indicator kind of sounds like a good thing to look at, right? Uh, and this is created by the conference board, and they amalgamate like 10 statistics to come up with this. And that has uh, rolled into negative territory on a year-over-year basis uh, for the last two months, and it was zero the month before. So uh, speaking mathematically, we call that a necessary but not a sufficient indicator, meaning that you need it, but just because you have it doesn't mean you actually get the recession. However, once you start to get in this deeper territory uh, for this long, it tends to be a harbinger of the recession. So you have to think about what's going to cause this. So, um, you know, I'm kind of on the fence here about what the recession looks like um, because I could feel it being very narrowly focused, things like housing, Right. The mortgage market, real estate agents, mortgage brokers, escrow agents, probably going to have a pretty significant slowdown. Right. Where you hear it anecdotally, you know, you know of that as well. So that could be something. Could there be knock on effects like, you know, let's say home furnishings, you know, restoration hardware has been warning for 18 months now about how bad this could be. Right. Um, so there's an example of a company that's been been signaling this as well. But also there are things that seem to be strong. There seems leisure still seems to be relatively strong. Now, doesn't mean next spring or summer people are going to travel, but it's been relatively resilient. So, you know, it's really hard to see at this point of it being a broad swath of the economy. Now, what, you know, usually when you get through these recessionary environments, what, what really prolongs things is a default cycle. So you can think back in like 2015, 2016, we had a mildish recession, but it wasn't classified as one. It was really commodity centric, right? It was it was primarily within the energy complex. There was a lot of debt lending. It led to a pretty big consolidation and default cycle in that in that sector, but it didn't spill over to the broad economy. Yeah, there's some turmoil markets, but it wasn't completely there. Actually, when you go back to the 2000 recession, there you know it really wasn't a recession until almost 20 uh, until 2000, 2002, right? Because those first couple of years was just a correction of the technology and the biotech bubble that we had. So, you know, I think some of the naysayers here in doomsday say it's going to be so severe. It's because, OK, yes, there's a higher debt burden. Yes, there was a lot of stuff financed at very cheap money. Um, and so it's just saying that this is all going to implode. So I, I think you'll probably see some some pockets, things like the, the real estate and, and knock on effects there. 
Um, I think you'll probably see some of these zombie companies uh, finally have to have their day of reckoning. These are companies that don't have enough earnings to cover their debt coverage, right? That's a very good candidate. And business models that don't make sense in a normally yielding environment. And so you put that together. Is that a broad recession or is that kind of narrow? I, I'm on the fence there. So I think it's we're going to at least get the narrow piece. We probably get some of that uh, ladder that I'm talking about, but I'm not sure that it's this thing that's a massively endemic recession. And what gives me a little bit of uh, a confidence in that too is that now with Fed funds rate on the upper end being 4%, at least there is a response mechanism from the Fed that's possible. Now, that response mechanism, as I said, I don't think it's coming in the short term. I think we have to battle inflation. Inflation has to get under control. But if we start to see deflation, right, that is, we risk the overshoot the other way on the inflationary side, I think the Fed would be very quick to respond at that point. So, you know, what we're seeing is there's there's things like the lagged indicators still look very strong, GDP, um, you know, some of the uh, labor market I talked about, wage growth out there uh, seems to be pretty supportive. Uh, the leading stuff looks a little dicey, but there's no like roadmap specifically for once that leading stuff turns over, how long it takes to get to the recession. And there's, there's one more thing I'd like to point out about the Fed policy is that we went back and looked at, you know, just, just during different hiking regimes. Once the Fed gets to the terminal rate or the highest rate in the cycle, which you don't know until after the fact, but once they get there, how long do they stay there? And we found on average it's about nine months. But the bad news about that is it's been as short as three months and it's been as long as like 27 months, right? And those were actually the last two hiking cycles. So juxtapose those, Jesse, right? The last one was three months. They hiked as, as recent as December of 18 and they cut in March of 19. And then you had the previous one where they were hiking all the way through 2006 and they didn't cut till 2008. So you get this kind of dynamic in the marketplace where I think traders kind of think about the last experience. I think that's why people are expecting a Fed, Fed, Fed pivot quicker uh, into this too. So I think you're going to have to see some cracks in, in the system. I think inflation has to roll over because I can see the Fed not cutting rates, even though the economic data is rolling over because they see inflation being this kind of pesky, persistent level that, that they just can't get through. So again, it's, it's very hard to tell our antennae are up about the recession watch for next year. But even so, some parts of the market are pretty attractive, even if there is a recession for next year. So we've been quite U.S.-centric so far in the conversation. I'd like to get your view on international equities. Is the destruction in the broader market lessened or perhaps even absent in, in certain other countries? And do you see a shift from a U.S.-centric world to one where emerging economies and countries like the BRICS nations start to pose a threat to America's dominant position as the strongest economy in the world, thus maybe creating more non-U.S. investing opportunities moving forward. Yeah, no, that's that's an excellent point to bring up. And so the, the carnage has not been spared uh, out there. The, the only markets that have done OK are the ones whose currencies devalue massively. Uh, and so it, it looks it looks like they've done well, but they haven't. It's merely a currency depreciation. So, um, you know, I think that the pain we've seen here is because, again, it all comes back down to the price of money. The price of money is not just going up in the U.S. It's going up globally. Right. This is a coordinated hiking regime outside like Turkey, uh, which is cutting in the face of their. By the way, uh, uh, my global portfolio manager told me this morning the Turkey inflation just got reported this week. It was eighty five point five percent. 
So just by the way, when you think 8.1% is bad, they have 85.5% inflation uh, on a year-over-year basis. And so uh, I think that what you're finding about the equity markets is that the rest of the world looks cheaper. The U.S. has been the only game in town. It's been the dominant performer. And I think that's set to change once the cycle turns. And so maybe that doesn't happen today. Maybe it takes this kind of blow off top and the dollar I referred to just recently where you need the currency to be supportive of it and people look at how cheap the rest of the world is. And I think in that, in that, through that lens, Europe still seems to be a problem, right? They have a lot of recessionary rates. I mean, every single country seems to be warning about a recession there. Um, we just got to hope that they have a, a relatively mild winter and they just don't get destroyed on energy prices, right? Um, that look, That's a significant risk there. So that economy, it looks pretty fragile at this point. The UK, it's had its own other issues, pretty fragile system as well. Um, Japan, obviously their currency is an issue, but their stock market's not too bad, right? They, they don't have inflation on the same things. Uh, obviously the currency matters here. Uh, at some point you want to unhedge that thing and you'll want to want to own yen as well. Um, but also I think the emerging markets, the cheapness there, and let's even just strip out China because China's uh, this, this uh, really potential to be to weigh on the uh, on the emerging economies for the next year or so. Uh, again, with the reports of they were going to have no zero COVID policy, then the next day they locked down, right? In Xingao or whatever it was uh, that they locked down. So it's like uh, until they change that policy, it's going to be rough. But the things we're talking about, the dollar strength, once that dollar rolls over, uh, I do think you want to be a non-dollar investor. I think you want to start biasing your allocations that way. Um, but I think it's too early. I think it's too early. Uh, yes, there's risk in the U.S. markets, but I think they look like a better place to play for right now. If you're talking about building things five years out, absolutely, you should be owning EM. You should be building those positions and you should have levels on relative performance that so I'm going to sell the stock of the U.S. to buy these markets at these levels because, again, I think over the longer term, that's going to be a good setup. But you're going to need that headwind uh, or you're going to need the tailwind, I should say, of a weaker dollar to help you with those investments. And it's just hard to see in the very short term. So we've talked a lot about about a lot of concerning trends today, an extended bear market, recession, out of control inflation. Um, is there anything you're seeing in the markets and the broader economy right now that has you optimistic for the future? Well, I mean, look, at the end of the day, we all are allocators, right? We, we have money to allocate. And we've got to figure out what to do. And so my optimism doesn't stem from a forecast. It stems on what we can do. And I kind of alluded to this earlier, but... I can say, you know what, I can build a fixed income portfolio, I think, that can weather the forthcoming storm. And when I say the forthcoming storm, whether that is we actually have a recession, right? There's something that should work in that environment. That thing is called treasuries, right? 10 years, 30-year treasuries, those have the, the ability to generate 15, 20, 30% returns if we get, a, a let's call it a deeper type of recession. That's because rates need to come down. The Fed will respond that way as well. Um, on the other hand, uh, what if what if we're wrong and instead, all of a sudden, instead of having that recession, that we continue to muddle along? We engineer the soft line. The Fed is able to navigate. They pull their foot off in time. That means corporate spreads, credit risk out there is way too wide, right? The yields are too high. I should be not get, I should not get, 9, 10, 11% in some of these assets we're talking about. And by the way, there's parts of the investment grade bond market that yield double digits today, right? And they don't have significant amounts of interest rate risk in them. 
Um, it's just, again, it's it's been this bloodbath in the marketplace. And so the optimism doesn't stem for that. I have a better forecast than someone. It's that right now I can put together a portfolio that let's call it half credit, half rates. Those two things now with the current environment and levels should be able to work in tandem. If we get this kind of muddle along scenario, right? Spreads need to come in. Rates probably don't need to go up anymore. They're probably sufficient. That means inflation's being contained. Rates don't do anything. I earn 4% on my treasury portfolio, right? Spreads come in. I'm yielding 8, 9% on a diversified portfolio, right? But then those spreads need to come in. So they tighten in. So I earn the carry on that. Plus I get some capital appreciation. All of a sudden you put these two things together. You're talking about something that can do a high single digit type of return over a, a relatively short period of time. Call it 12 to 18 months. So then what if we have the bad case? Well, I don't think spreads leak out significantly from here because corporate America has done a good job refinancing. You don't have this huge, you know, maturity wall coming to the market, this big default environment. And, you know, so at this stage, a lot of the pain's been felt in those securities. Can spreads go out 100, 150 base points? Sure they can. But you won't be able to buy that credit at that point. No one's going to sell it to you. So I think it's, it's the time to be able to buy that in. And if bad things happen, right, that side I talked about in the treasury is going to make you 20, 25%, right? So if that's the case, all of a sudden now, you can now do a rotation and buy the other side. So that's why I say the setup in the market today, it's got me the most optimistic that you actually have two areas that can offset their risk. And, you know, the critic would tell me, well, Jeff, that hasn't happened this year. You're absolutely right. Coming this year, we didn't say this would work. Right. You know, this isn't the you know, we didn't have enough yield in the market. But now by being patient, you do. And yes, it's been a bloodbath out there. But that bloodbath, we all think about inequities. We all learn to buy the dip. It's funny. No one wants to buy the dip in bonds. But bonds are a surer thing because we can re-underwrite the, the securities. We can look at the cash flows and we expect the majority of them to give us par back in maturity. If we're buying assets that have a 70 handle on them and we expect to get 100 back, doesn't sound like a horrible trade. Maybe it takes me four years to get back to 100. But that's, you know, still I'm grinding away another seven, eight points a year. So again, I just think that there is an opportunity set. I think investors really need to start looking forward here. You do that by looking through the lens of yield. You put some kind of stress assumptions on that and you'll find that it's one of the most attractive bond markets we've seen since late 2010. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jeffrey. It's been an amazing conversation. So much knowledge shared. For people who want to hear more from you or learn more about Double Line, uh, where should they go online? Well, we have a website like everybody else, DoubleLine.com. We just revamped it, so we'd love to hear some feedback on it. It just came out on Halloween, so take a look at it. We, we'll appreciate any feedback there. Uh, I host a podcast as well, Jesse. Not as good as yours, not as many followers, but it's called The Sherman Show. Uh, you can also follow us on the Twitter, at Sherman Show Pod is the handle. Uh, we're, we're trying to tweet a little bit more out there instead of just posting clips out there. So that's my New Year's resolution out there. And, you know, you can always uh, reach out to us at, at, at info at DoubleLine.com and you can ask us any questions. And so uh, we got a lot of people that love to share our views. We do a lot of webcasts. You mentioned the YouTube channel, YouTube.com backslash DoubleLine Capital. Well, thank you so much for coming on and definitely hope to have you on to continue the conversation in the future. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Jesse. And uh, good luck, everyone out there. Keep fighting the good fight. And uh, hopefully we're going to see those positive returns in 2023. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. 
follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.